0: As we go to the Word this morning, uh, you can turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah, book of the prophet Isaiah, and chapter two. Isaiah chapter two. The days are getting shorter. The days are getting shorter as we move towards. Uh, as we move towards the end of December or into December. I can remember when I was in college and living in an apartment in Old Town, that as the days got shorter, my my seasonal depression got larger, <laughs> and and I would wake up in the morning, and there was an east-facing window in our living room, and there was a couch against the window, and I would make my oatmeal, at that point I was trying to perfect oatmeal, and I'd get my bowl of oatmeal, and I'd sit backwards on the couch facing the window, right, with my my face almost against the glass to catch the early morning rays of the sun coming up over the Penobscot, just because I longed for the light. It's in the darkness that we long most dearly for the light, and that's why it's fitting that... Uh, We celebrate the season of Advent in the darkest time of the year. Because the season of Advent celebrates and remembers and anticipates the coming of the light. The coming of Jesus, who when he came into the world said, I am the light of the world. The season of Advent, Advent literally means arrival, it means coming. And so during the season of Advent, we have in mind Jesus' coming, Jesus' arrival. Of course, his first arrival in the manger in Bethlehem, but also his second arrival, his second coming. And so the season of Advent is a season of anticipation where we long for the light, both in his first coming as we look to celebrate Christmas and in his second coming as we long for him to come again. And so this morning, we're going to long for, look for the coming of the light in Isaiah chapter 2. And my aim is, is to spend, unless I change my mind, my aim is to spend most of Advent in the book of Isaiah, because Isaiah, it's a long book, and it's full of hope in Jesus. Throughout the the book of the prophet Isaiah, you see Jesus again and again and again, not mentioned by name, but again and again and again, the Messiah, the Savior is foretold and all the salvation that God was going to bring is looked for and longed for and anticipated in the prophet Isaiah. Advent is a season of anticipation, so Isaiah is a good book, a good place for us to be. And so the passage we're going to be in this morning is Isaiah 2. We'll look at the first five verses. And I love verse 5 as a way of kind of setting the stage for us in the season of Advent. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. As I read the passage, it's not long. I want you to hold in your mind two images that Isaiah is painting for us. And these are the kind of two images that we're going to hold on to the exaltation of a mountain a mountain being lifted up and a judge's courtroom a judge in session okay a mountain being lifted up and a judge in session and these are spo- both these images are supposed to give us great hope and so i'll read our passage together um and then we'll pray and then i'm going to have Tenna come up and light the candle okay let's read isaiah 2 beginning in verse 1 the word that isaiah the son of amos saw concerning judah and jerusalem it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come And say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks, Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word, and as we look towards Advent, and as we walk through the darkness of this world, we pray, Lord, that upon the darkness of this world and of our hearts, the light of Christ would dawn, and that we would walk in the light of the Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, Tenna, come up. We'll light the candle. Each, each week as we move towards Christmas, we'll light an additional candle. And so it's, a, it's sort of a countdown. Thank you, Tenna. Um, a countdown to Christmas. So on Christmas Eve, we'll, we'll light the center candle. There's more than one kind of darkness. Darkness does not exist just as a physical phenomenon. It also exists as a spiritual phenomenon and scripture is constantly using the, the image, the picture of light to describe not so much the physical phenomenon of light, but as an image, as a picture of the darkness which has fallen over this world. And of course, the foundational darkness that we deal with is alienation from God. The, the darkness beneath all darkness is, is the fact that this creation has been severed in many ways from the presence of God, right? Adam and Eve kicked out of Eden, kicked out of the garden. Um, And out of that darkness has sprung any number of darknesses. The darkness of sin and of guilt in our hearts. Um, The darkness of illness, of death. The gray darkness of grief and of loss. The darkness of world conflict and war. The list could go on. As Christians, our hope our ultimate and final hope in the darkness is the light of the coming of Christ. Our hope is in Jesus. That's what I want us to see this morning. And I want us to see that, that this morning in particular because I'm more and more convinced that most people living in our culture, many of our friends and neighbors, have no sense of any kind of transcendent hope of where this is all going. I think most people around us are walking in darkness in the sense that they see that things are broken. They see that things even inside their own hearts are broken and messed up, but there's no sense that at any point all of this will be made right. There's just a sense that, well, we'll go on and we might be able to work out some improvements, but there's not actually any underlying direction of the universe and certainly no assurance that this is all gonna end up well and the wonderful hope that we have as Christians is that as dark as the darkness may, may become, the light is coming, this, the dawn will come, and Christ will come. We're gonna see that hope on display in this mountain, and in this, what we will see is actually a hopeful judgment that Isaiah looks to. First, a mountain. Verse two, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. The picture here is of of one mountain being exalted, being lifted up over all the other mountains. And it's interesting what, what happens as the mountain is lifted up. Usually when a hill is lifted up, water flows off of it, right? But as this mountain is lifted up, people flow up it that there's the, the, the word flow is used, right? Usually referred, you're referring to liquids, right? But here it's people, right? That the mountain of the house of the Lord will be lifted up so high that all the nations flow to it, all the peoples come into it, saying, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. And the result of the exaltation of this mountain is that all the nations of the world are converted unto God, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Now, this is a very hopeful picture, isn't it? A very hopeful picture, especially in light of the foundational darkness of this world, right, which is our alienation from God. The picture here is is one day of people from many nations coming in and actually coming to know God, seeking to know God and to be reconciled to him, no longer cast out from Eden, but actually drawn up into God's presence. Well, what is this mountain? What are we looking at? Well, Isaiah describes it in various ways. He calls it the mountain of the house of the Lord, twice. And then later at the end of verse 3, he calls it, he identifies it with Zion or with Jerusalem, which are synonyms. We talk about Zion, we're talking about the height of Jerusalem, we're talking about the place where in the Old Covenant the people of God gathered to worship at the temple. And so the picture, I think as Isaiah at least would have understood it, is, well, it would have been hope in, in great darkness for them. Isaiah's writing in the years um, before the exile, Isaiah is writing to people, to a people who are about to be brought under great darkness. Addressing himself to people in, in Judah, in the southern kingdom, he, he's telling them that what is about to come is the destruction of Jerusalem, the, the locus of their culture of their worship of God is about to be destroyed the temple was going to be torn down the walls were going to fall and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem were going to be taken off into exile God was going to bring judgment on his people because of their sin because they'd wandered great darkness was about to fall and Isaiah speaks about this darkness but every time he speaks of judgment he also speaks of hope Isaiah, again and again, if you were to sum up the book of Isaiah, it's God's judgment, but also hope. Hope, and hope becomes the dominating theme. And so you can imagine these people having their homes been destroyed by Babylonian invaders, being carried off into exile, seeing Jerusalem smoking in the distance, the ruins of their homes fading into the distance, the ruins of the, their once glorious temple, Solomon's temple destroyed in the distance. But some of them perhaps had the, the words of Isaiah ringing in their ears. It shall come to pass in the latter days, later it will come to pass, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. The promise of Isaiah is that despite the destruction of Zion, of Jerusalem, of in some ways the leveling of the mountain of the Lord, one day it would be lifted up again, actually to a glory higher than it ever occupied before. That the mountain of the house of the Lord, that Jerusalem, that Zion will be lifted up so high that all the nations will come into it. It's a hopeful picture. One of the questions that we need to ask when we come to prophetic books like this, Isaiah is speaking about future events, is future events for him. The question for us is, what in this passage has already been fulfilled, and what are we still waiting for? That's one of the great questions with, when you come to prophetic books like Isaiah, um, because certain things which Isaiah speaks of in, in his book have been fulfilled already. For example, all, all that Isaiah says about Christ's first coming, right, of, of the Virgin, right, of Emmanuel has been fulfilled. But there's much in Isaiah which has not yet come to pass. Well, let's think through history. Eventually, 70 years after Judah's exile, they returned. They were brought back under the Persian Empire. And they came back to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, they rebuilt the temple. And the book of Ezra rec- records these events for us. And so let's ask the question, well, was the rebuilt temple in Ezra's day the glorious exaltation of the mountain of the Lord? It wasn't. It was a restoration, but it, it wasn't even as glorious as Solomon's temple. We read in Ezra 3, at the dedication of the foundation of the temple, that many of the priests and Levites, this is Isaiah 3.12, many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping. So that when the temple was restored here 70 years later, it wasn't nearly as glorious as the one that had been there before. And the old men who had seen the old temple weep as they see the foundations because they understand this temple doesn't stand up. Years later, during the the time of Herod the Great, the temple was renovated. Um, It got a pretty big facelift, and the temple in Jerusalem became a, a relatively glorious thing, so that Jesus' disciples in the Gospels remarked to Jesus at one point how beautiful the temple complex is. And indeed, it had become beautiful, certainly more glorious than the original restoration temple, but do we see yet the glory that Isaiah is speaking of here in Isaiah 2? Do we see all the nations flocking? We don't. We, do, we don't see that even in the, the glorious temple of Jesus' day. We don't yet see the mountain of the Lord being lifted up to such an exalted place that all the nations are coming into to worship the Lord. And so then we run into a roadblock, which is Jesus, and what Jesus says about the temple. Because Isaiah is speaking about Zion, about Jerusalem, about the mountain of the Lord, being exalted. The place of the temple. And yet Jesus has some very interesting things to say about the temple. You can turn, if if you want to, with me to John 4. John 4, you're probably familiar with this passage. Jesus has a conversation with a woman of Samaria. And... uh, Jesus, well, the, um, the, the Jews, those who lived in Judea, had, um, had, a, had beef. They had a problem with the Samaritans. And, and the problem was that they disagreed on where they ought to worship. Uh, the Jews believed they had to worship in the temple in Jerusalem. The Samaritans said, no, 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 you have to worship on Mount Gerizim. Um, and so they disagreed where the presence of God was that they could go and worship. And so Jesus enters into this conversation with the Samaritan woman. She recognizes, oh, Jesus is from Judea. Um, He's a teacher. He's a prophet. Let me ask him the big question that we all wrestle with. Where should we worship? And it's very interesting what Jesus says. Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, this is John 4, verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people are to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. So when asked the question about the right place to worship, Jesus says, actually the temple isn't the important thing anymore. Because in Jesus Christ, the presence of God had come walking on two feet. It wasn't bound to the temple anymore. And because in the new covenant, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God is not bound to a temple anymore. The apostles actually refer to Christians as temples of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to go to a temple to worship. There's nothing special about this building. What's special about this building is the people who are in it, because we who know the Lord are actually filled with the Holy Spirit. We are the temples of the Holy Spirit. And so then what are we to make of Isaiah's prophecy? Which was not fulfilled in the days of a physical temple. The Herod's temple was torn down in, in AD seventy and it has never been rebuilt. What are we to make of this? How will Isaiah's prophecy be fulfilled if the mountain of the Lord must be lifted above all other mountains? Well, here we could speculate in our own wisdom or we could continue to look at what the New Testament says about the temple. So I appreciate you going on this tour of the New Testament with me. We're going to go to Hebrews now. Book of Hebrews, chapter 12. And in Hebrews chapter 12, and this is where I get excited, in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, the writer of Hebrews is writing to Christians and he wants them to take, he wants them to take Christianity seriously. Um, he's writing to encourage them in a lot of ways, but that's one way of summing up at least one of his points. And in Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 18, he's making a comparison. And he's, he's writing to people who are familiar with Moses, the story of Moses at Mount Sinai. If you're familiar with that story, that's when God gives the law and the Ten Commandments, right? And God's presence is on top of the mountain in smoke and thunder and lightning. And God's voice thunders down and the people are undone. And they say, Moses, please don't let God talk to us anymore. It's terrifying. Let, let him speak to you, Moses, right? And so um, there's this, like, this thundering thing, right? And the writer of hebrews says you think sinai is incredible you've actually come to something far more incredible you think mount sinai is something special you've come to a greater mountain the writer of hebrews says verse 22 but you hebrews 12 22, but you have come he's writing to christians this is true of all christians he says you have come to mount zion This is true of you if you are in Christ. It doesn't matter if you've never visited Jerusalem. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The writer of Hebrews is unveiling here the incredible glorious spiritual reality which lies behind even a seemingly mundane gathering like this that when we gather in the name of Jesus Christ in the presence of his holy spirit we together are spiritually united with the people of god across all ages as citizens of the heavenly jerusalem and the holy spirit is here with us who lifts us up into the presence of god God himself, God himself is here with us in a way even more powerful than Sinai. You have come to Mount Zion, says the writer of Hebrews. You have come to the city of the living God. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. In light of this, Isaiah 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Friends, it's my understanding that this Prophecy has been fulfilled in part, not yet in whole, in part in the proclamation of the gospel to all the nations. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus tells his disciples to be witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Out of Zion shall go forth the law, the Torah, the teaching of God, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and it has gone forth. And as the word of God has gone forth from Jerusalem over the last 2,000 years, what has happened? The nations have heard. The nations have heard, and they have come into Jerusalem. Not to the physical Jerusalem, but to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. And what do we say even this morning every time we gather together? We say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths, that we may be his disciples. And this is the message that we proclaim, isn't it? Come, come, let us go, let us go. And this message has spread, and the nations have come in to the point where more people today in the world would claim the name of Jesus than any other God. The gospel has gone out. Many among the nations have come in. I want to pause here and just say, let's let that encourage us. Do you see the confidence with which Isaiah speaks? God's gospel mission is not an uncertain thing. He will accomplish it. Whew. Has it been perfectly fulfilled, though? All the nations shall flow to it. All. Turn with me to Revelation. Revelation 21. The final fulfillment of this good news about the exaltation of the mountain of the Lord, I believe, will not come to pass until Christ's return, until after he makes all things new. In Revelation 21, the Apostle John paints a picture in words of the vision that he is given by Jesus and the vision he's given in John 21 is of the new heavens and of the new earth and of a city whose name is Zion, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. And the vision he receives is of, the, of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to the earth. It descends and heaven and earth are made one as we sing in One Christmas carol, heaven and earth made one, God again dwelling amongst his people. Is there a temple there? Revelation 21, verse 22, I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. God will be immediately present with his people. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb By its light will the nations walk. What are the nations doing? Walking in the light of the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. One day the mountain of the Lord will be lifted up and the nations will flow into it. I think this should be an encouragement to us in light of the darkness of the world. So many people are uncertain about the future. So many people are uncertain about where all of this goes. We don't have to be uncertain. That one day Christ will come There will be a judgment. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. And he will make all things new. He will resurrect even the the, the heavens and the earth will be made new. And God will dwell with his people there forever. And we have this wonderful picture, right? All the nations coming up to the mountain, up to the new Jerusalem. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. This is a healing of that fundamental wound, that fundamental rift between God and man. Healed in the new Jerusalem. Let's fix our eyes on Zion, amen? We are bound, as the old spiritual goes, we are bound for the promised land. We are bound for the promised land. Who will come and go with me? We are bound for the promised land. Not that we're going on pilgrimage to an earthly place. We are on a pilgrimage to the new and heavenly Jerusalem. That's the image of the mountain. Then there's an image of judgment. Isaiah 2, verse 4. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples." Often when we hear the word judgment and think about judgment coming at the second coming of Christ, our, our first gut level reaction might be fear. Um, and I would want to make a case that for the Christian, the first gut level reaction should actually be hope, and that's for a couple of reasons. First of all, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, we have nothing to fear in judgment. John says in 1 John that perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with judgment. Those of us who have come to know the perfect love of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection have nothing to fear from the judgment of God because our sins have already received judgment on the cross of Jesus Christ. The price has been paid, and we have been given the very righteousness of Christ. We do not fear judgment because of the finished work of Jesus, but we also have reason to hope in judgment because actually what this world needs most is a good judge. Amen? One of the most frustrating things I have in, in um, watching the news at any time or observing from a, from a distance any kind of national or international conflict is trying to figure out who's right. Sometimes it's apparently clear who the good guys are and some, sometimes and who the bad guys are. Sometimes it's really hard to figure that out. Sometimes it seems really clear and then later you find out oh there's actually a lot of darkness on what I thought was the good side. It's hard to know. We have no perfect court of arbitration in this world. We long for a perfect judge and we need one. There's so much conflict and dispute that happens in our families, but also internationally, that ends up being settled with the death of many innocents. This is a great grief, I think. One great American general said, it is good that war is so terrible, lest we should grow too fond of it. This is a man who made war his business. War is an inherent is not an inherent good. There is such thing as just war. There is such thing, I believe, as necessary war. But when all things are made new, there will be no no war. And the reason is that we will have a perfect judge. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. Um, One of the Totalitarian regimes always look peaceful because you've got a guy at the top who's in control. There's usually quite a lot of conflict underneath because the guy at the top is usually deeply corrupt. What we need is not the illusion of peace from a tyrannical dictator, what we need is the reality of peace from a perfect king the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a wonderfully hopeful picture that he gives us, that when Christ brings perfect judgment and is exalted as king over all the earth, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. What a hope that is, that the tanks will all be melted down and turned into tractors. A hope, especially in a time of war, seemingly intractable conflicts. How can this be resolved? The ultimate solution is the return of Jesus Christ. Verse 5, O house of Jacob, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. I love that invitation. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's as if we could either say yes or no. It's as if it's, it's possible not to walk in the light of the Lord. It's as if it's, it's possible to keep walking in darkness and hopelessness. And the invitation is, let's walk in the light. Let's walk in hope. There will be darkness in this life until Christ's return. We will face darkness. The Bible does not pretend there is no darkness. There is deep darkness in the world. The hope of the gospel is not that we can walk around now pretending like everything's okay. It's that we have hope that in the end actually everything will be okay. That's, I believe, the hope the light of the Lord. It's the light that the people walking into exile had. One day it will be okay. The Lord will make all things right. And so my invitation to us in this Advent season is that we would walk in the light of the Lord. Whatever hopelessness, whatever darkness may be over you, um, walk in the light of the Lord. doesn't mean everything is going to be made okay tomorrow. Some things won't be made okay until Christ comes again. But we can walk in hope. And one really concrete way we can do that, to walk in the light of the Lord rather than in darkness, is to come to the table of the Lord. And that's what we're going to do here in just a moment. We're going to come to the Lord's, Lord's Supper together. And uh, when we come to the Lord's table together, part of what we're doing is looking forward to a time to come. Uh, Jesus, when he instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples, a part of what he said is that he will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until he drinks in the eternal kingdom. And, and part of what the Apostle Paul speaks tells us in, in Corinthians about the Lord's Supper is that part of what we do when we partake is that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're doing this in anticipation of Christ's second coming. Um, just a brief word about the Lord's Supper as we come to it. Um, what we do when we come to the Lord's table is we remember and we proclaim the body and the blood of jesus christ that he died for us and that he was raised and as we come to the table we not only proclaim that it happened we proclaim and it was for me we we testify actually to our participation in christ when we come to the table we say i i believe i need jesus and as we come to the table we trust that the spirit of god even will minister to us right and assure us um, of the finished work of Christ as we come and eat the bread and and drink the cup. This is a family table. This is for those who have come to know and to believe in Jesus Christ as the son of God, who have believed in him, trusted in him alone for their salvation, um, have put their faith in him, and, and, and typically those who have been baptized as Christians. And so I'd encourage you this morning, if you're a Christian, um, come forward um, and eat and drink. This table is not for people who deserve it. If you think you deserve it, it's not for you. This ta- this table is for people who know their need of Jesus. Um, I ask Kevin to come forward. Uh, and as he comes, uh, I'd like to read the words of institution. Uh, Paul records for us in Corinthians. He says this. until he comes. Amen? And so, I'd invite you uh, to take a moment to prepare your heart if you need it, and when you're ready, um, you can come up this aisle, and uh, and we'll have the elements here for you. Um, and uh, you can either partake here, eat and drink, or take them back to your, your pew um, and, and eat there when you're ready. I want to give one more invitation. As if as if it is an invitation from Jesus to the table. Come all who are hungry, all who are sinners. Come all who look to Christ. Come all who belong to him. Come and feast at the table of your Savior. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ.